Welcome, all you wiretappers out there, back here in the studio, Gangland Wire. I'm on a Zoom call with with some guys that have been on here before. You know, uh, my friend Camillus Robinson, Cam Robinson, and uh, been on here several times before. Cam, welcome. I'm glad to have you back. As always, I'm glad to be here, Gary. So uh, you also, a lot of you are going to know this next man. Uh, he's uh, he's really well known in the mob history. He's kind of one of the early guys in this mob history world. Uh, Rick Perello from Cleveland. Rick, welcome. Thank you, Gary. Good to be back with you and 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 Cam. Now, Rick, when I I kind of wasn't even thinking about ever doing a podcast. It might have been. I might have done that. I, I was getting ready to do my first documentary on the mob here in Kansas city on the mob and the skim and kill the Irishman came out and I saw your documentary back then. And I went to, and then the movie came out and I saw it and, and it was great. You were, you were a real inspiration. I want to tell you right now, man, you, you inspired me. Absolutely. You were a cop too. And you did all this stuff. So, Hey, if he can do it, I can do it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard from a few, uh, a few like regional mob authors it, 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 it kind of said the same thing it makes me feel good because it was really my first book was one of the first uh, books the uh, mafia history books that was outside of new york outside yeah. of chicago outside mm -hmm. of las vegas and and after that you started seeing more and more you know kansas city philadelphia miami yeah really they're all over the place now i tell you they're, they're on youtube the, the field is getting crowded on the mob history world with all yeah. these mobsters that are now got youtube channels you know sammy the bull and michael francese and right, right, bobby right. luisi and jimmy calandra i tell you i don't know how many they are yeah Tom, I, I, Tom I think you definitely opened the door for a lot of people working I mean, certainly i mean i i'm i'm out here doing it because i've, I've read your site and, and your books and your movies. So, I mean, I, I, I definitely. You, you have been an inspiration to, inspiration to us all, Rick, I'll tell you right now. Well, it, you know, it, it's a, kind of a strange thing to think that it's really my grandfather's murder back in 1932 really? during Prohibition that, <laughs> that, that really was the, uh, the, the spark that started yeah. this whole thing. I never, I never thought that I'd get to a, uh, a fourth book as I was working to finish that first one. Uh, but it's, it's been fun. It's been well-received. I've, I've, yeah. I've been fortunate. I've been blessed, really. Well, we all appreciate you. So tonight or today, we're going to talk about bombs, bullets, and bribes, the true story of notorious Jewish mobster Alex Shonder Burns. And, and folks, uh, there's a book. Uh, you need to get this book. It, it's real readable, and it's about a Bob guy that, that kind of has always flown under the radar, but was really important in that Cleveland family. And and the Cleveland family is really important uh, outside their own region, uh, their connection to the Teamsters, and and, and they sent their their early uh, Jewish guys uh, with Mo Dalitz and uh, another guy to Las Morris Vegas. Kleinman. Yeah, Morris Kleinman to Las Vegas and get that going. And, and it's a pretty important family. Now, now, Rick, you probably will go back to, with him, you know, killing the Irishman and remember that and killing the Irishman. The Christopher Walken character was uh, Shonda Burns. Uh, did you get a chance to talk to, to uh, him about playing that part? Uh, no, I didn't talk to him personally, but I read uh, an interview that he did, and I kind of um, laughed a little bit when he 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 said he was surprised to find out that Shonda Burns was actual actually a real person. <laughs> but then he uh, he said he had a feeling he was going to play his character more like Chris Walken than Shonda Burns. <laughs> you know, not not something that a nonfiction author who spent five years researching a story wants to really, hear. Really, really. But then again, what a thrill to have Christopher Walken in the movie. <laughs> You got that. So he had no you argument for me. That's for sure. I don't remember him saying more cowbells. <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to uh, meet him. The producer uh, called me at the hotel and said, hey, come on down. Chris, Chris Walken's here. And uh, and then we, we started to leave. I had my family, kids, you know, 15 minutes later, we were ready to leave the hotel and get down there. Yeah. And the set was just about 10 minutes away from the hotel. But then the producer called me back and said, oh, forget it. He just left. You know? <laughs> so, but I did meet him. Uh, I, I meet him and took a, I met him and took a picture with him uh, just very briefly at mm -hmm. the um, premiere, the after party at the premiere in, in New York. So I have one, uh, one photo with him and uh, with my wife. <laughs> 
And, and I'll say this, the one thing that we'll get on this. I did, I did like that movie personally. I, I did like that movie. It was, I like those, that look just like a uh, good fellas. I like that look at the mid-level mm-hmm. mob guys who out there doing the deal, they're doing the deal, the real stuff. That's what makes organized crime work is those guys like that. And, and then when you get wars between them, then it gets even better. So that's, uh, I really appreciated it from that standpoint. Yeah, not, not there, there's very few, uh, when you think about it, top guys out there that are living in the, uh, you know, the really expensive home and don't have to yeah. worry about money yeah. and everything's yeah. getting kicked up to them. But, you know, the more majority of those guys out there are, are the, the, the mid-level, lower level soldiers that are maybe in some cases struggling, struggling to make yeah. a, mm-hmm. a living <laughs> and taking perhaps taking uh, uh, certainly a lot of the risk too. Oh yeah, yeah. there. That's where the fun is. <laughs> that's where the action is. <laughs> yeah, street level is where the good stories are. <laughs> really. Yeah. All right. So, uh, bombs, bullets, and bribes. Tell us a little bit, kind of a earlier history on Shonda Burns. Well, I'll tell you first, uh, 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 Gary, just briefly. That title, uh, Shonda was a real uh, womanizer. And the title was almost going to be Bombs, Bullets, Bribes, and Babes. Oh, really? <laughs> but I went with my editor's argument that four, you know, yeah. four words is probably too much. So we settled, settled it, Bombs, Bullets, and Bribes. But, you know, I call him Cleveland. He's really is Cleveland's most notorious Jewish racketeer. And he had connections all over Las Vegas, uh, uh, Florida, and New York, um, Pittsburgh, certainly, and uh he uh, he started off like a lot of these guys did is, is uh, sort of a an associate of the early uh, early mafia in Cleveland, which was known then as the Mayfield Road Mob. And uh, you know, he, he I think he had his first arrest when he was in his early twenties for uh, breaking into a house. Then he stole a car, served some time, and then then he fell in with the Mayfield Road Mob as sort of a uh, a, a soldier or associate, and uh, became known kind of for for helping them uh, move in on the numbers racketeers uh the the illegal lottery back then it was known as policy it was uh uh little balls that were drawn out of a bag to pick the winning numbers and in later years it became uh there was another game called clearing house which was a little bit harder to uh cheat it became much more popular but the but the Cleveland mob, uh, as in other big cities, they, they moved in on that, uh, that, that nickel and dime operation yeah, because yeah. there was really, it was very popular. There was a lot of money to be made with these, these nickel bets. Most of it was in the black neighborhoods, not all of it. And, and, um, and after that, Chandra kind of, uh, he, he was always allied with the Cleveland mafia, but he was sort of independent. He didn't, uh, I know before we started recording, um, Cam mentioned, uh, you mentioned, Gary, the uh, the Jewish racketeers that were very big in Cleveland, Mo Dalitz and uh, 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 Kleinman. And... Kleinman, all, yeah, the the the, uh, the Jewish boys, they call oh, them. Yeah. John Rockman. Yeah, and then Rockman in, in later years. But Chandra could have been part of that group, but I think he was a little bit too... Um, a little too uncontrolled, a little bit too hot tempered. And, and uh, so I think he was satisfied as being a, uh, in, an independent. And uh, he, he eventually went on to, to, uh, to take over, just like the Mayfield Road Mob did with uh, the numbers racket, to take over prostitution in uh, Cleveland. And, and, um, and then eventually got back involved in the numbers racket. And, and that's probably how he made probably most of his money through the year, through the, the into the fifties, sixties and uh, the seventies being sort of a, uh, a newspaper reporter described him as a league commissioner. He handled the, uh, you know, kind of overseeing and enforcing all the different uh, games for the different operators so that the odds were kept the same and guys weren't undercutting each other and things ran smooth. Everybody was making money. The runners weren't cheating and then if, if a guy got hit hard with a number, a number that was, you know, there was a lot of money bet on uh, and he, he would provide cash loans. And uh, some of that money came from Southern Florida, guys like um, uh, Pittsburgh, Jaime Martin. And uh, uh, who's the other guy, George, uh, I'll think of his name in a minute, George, George Gordon, another, you know, uh, uh, guy connected in with the, uh, with that upper level gambling 
gambling group who were really just just under Meyer Lansky, who of course is uh, you know one of the real big names. So he was just a he was a big player. He was uh, bigger. I'm talking about Shonder, bigger than life, uh, and, and just a real character. And that's that's really one of the that's really the big reason why I decided to devote about about five years working on that story. <laughs> You know, it, it, it interests me. I did have some questions about there seem to be a lot of Jewish racketeers in Cleveland. Uh, you know, the guys who went out to Vegas, as you said, the Jewish boys, you've got uh, Kleinman and, and Dalitz and, and Rothkopf. And then, like you said, later, you had uh, you had May Schrockman. And I, I had wondered where Shonda Burns fit into that. And it sounds like he, he had the connections nationwide, but he, he focused a lot on the gaming in, in Cleveland and could reach out when he had to. Is that that's sort of a, a fair assessment of where where Burns was yeah I, I think he he wanted to be sort of a, a, a bigger fish in a smaller pond I think he was happy he was more of a street guy he yeah. was more of a street guy and um and that was just his his world and he was comfortable with it and uh he was comfortable um with all of the connections that he made uh starting off Gary you asked me about his earlier life and and he he was a guy that organized uh, uh, relationships in his head. You know, if he met a, uh, a young guy who was maybe, uh, you know, a law student who was uh, frequenting one of his uh, one of his brothels, you know, five, 10 years later, when that guy was working maybe as an assistant prosecutor or as a defense attorney, uh, you know, that that came that came um, into his into his organization. It was a connection that he had and he took advantage of those connections. Interesting. And that mob memory that so comes uh, <laughs> in handy with those guys. <laughs> did, did he do much in the labor uh, racketeering there in, in Cleveland? Or was that strictly left to the Italians? Well, he, he was connected, but I don't think he was a, a, a major player in the labor racket, although one, he had he certainly had a, um, a, a, a scam going. He would extort, you know, different companies, uh, and, and tout himself to, to be a uh, sort of a, a labor uh, uh, problem solver, you know, labor mediator. Yeah. Uh, and and um, so if they had a problem, the problem created by Shonder himself, yeah. <laughs> he would step in and for a fee, he would, uh, you know, would he, he would get those deliveries going or we, he would get that, you know, the vandalism to stop happening to the uh, shop. So he, he got on different payrolls and, and uh, just as sort of the protection racket, you know, but, mm -hmm. but he was a guy that, that uh, I think he liked multiple streams of income. He was a hustler. And uh, so he did, he had a lot of things uh, going. And like I say, he, he liked to work the streets. And I think that was his, um, his, his life was kind of to, to, you know, was to live up to the reputation that he, created by being Alex Shonder Burns. And uh, um, it, it's, it's just, uh, he was just quite a, quite a character. He could serve as sort of a go-between with the Italians and with the other street. He was trusted all around basically as, as a, as a central character. And, and I mean, you see him with, with, with Danny Green when, when Green went to work with him, but he was also the Italian psalmist. And, and like you described him, he was an intermediary. He could solve disputes on, on the street level because he, everybody sort of trusted Shonder. It's not, it's like in, in a way. He had that muscle. He had that 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 respect from everybody. Yeah, for sure, Cam. He was well respected by, I mean, almost everybody in the in the the underworld, and and he was, um, you know, he also served an enforcement role for the, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he had his own uh, crew of enforcers, uh, primarily for the numbers racket, uh, but he had guys that would, would uh, do other, you know, other jobs. Um, and it, it's funny, I didn't find out about one of the, one of the names guy by the name of Bob Bogus, Robert Bogus, who was a, uh, uh, quite a, uh, uh, quite the hitman, uh, you know, at least according to, uh, one of his close associates who wound up, uh, flipping and going to work for the, uh, for, for law enforcement, he gave quite an interesting, statement but uh, he was uh Bogus was one of one of uh Chandra's key key enforcers and and yes he was definitely trusted by the Italians trusted by the blacks a lot of the, a lot of the black operators they love they love Chandra Burns and uh he, he just was uh he was he was, he was a charismatic uh, charismatic guy and and uh 
you know, he had a lot of uh, connections also to police departments. He had his, he had his uh, guys in the police department that, uh, you know, would, would serve different roles. And of course that meant, uh, you know, putting, putting money out. And that was probably a little bit more so in the, in the forties, fifties and sixties. And then when you started getting into the seventies, uh, uh, that the police department sort of started to professionalize more and, and, um, and there was more uh, demand for accountability from the public. But, but uh, yeah, he had his connections all over the place. Like I said, in, in, in Florida too, he'd fly down there and he'd spend, he'd spend winters and uh, going to the, uh, the dog track, the horse track and, 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 um, and uh, fishing, going to boxing matches and, and meeting with his buddies, Jaime Martin and, and, uh, and, and, and sometimes he'd, he'd bring cash back, you know, a loan that he would use to keep the uh, numbers, the whole numbers operation rolling. Um, there was another guy, you know, a, a mob associate, I need to mention, by the name of Tony Panz, uh, Panzarella, they called him uh, Pans. And he was sort of um, uh, the connection uh, when, when Cam mentioned like a go-between. He was probably more a go-between uh for for shonder in the mafia the uh the uh local uh the Cle the cleveland mob and he uh sort of they sort of over oversaw the the uh numbers racket together but at one point it is uh is, when tony panzarella was in ill health i think uh shonda burns was running it a little bit more himself with, with his crew of enforcers probably going into the late 60s and, and late 70s and then uh danny green uh comes into the picture too and that's when when shonda has to go to prison but we we moved we moved ahead a little bit quick there mm -hmm. yeah. he, he got started pretty young with uh uh maxi diamond i read who was an associate of, of bill Preston, who was the the, the joint counsel uh was the joint council 41 so i mean he was he was a young guy when he got started on the street initially uh Shonder, you're talking about Shonder. Shonder, yes sir yeah yeah he was he was uh, you know under you know, if you keep going backwards you always yeah. find yeah. you always find the the, the boss that was the previous boss and then you you know as you move forward in time you find that some of the guys rose up to become uh either bosses or certainly influential figures and yeah maxi diamonds there, there's a guy who, who uh, another, if you go back to the, the 20s and 30s, uh, was uh, another guy, you could call him Cleveland's most notorious Jewish racketeer, but, but back, you know, back during Prohibition, had a big uh, liquor, uh, liquor um, business and rum running and all that. And yeah, Shonder worked for him, uh, for, for him too, and kind of came up under him. And then uh, moved to the uh, the Mayfield Road mob, and then, like I said, eventually became uh, became his own his own man, an independent, but was always respected and allied with the uh, with the other guys. So how, how did he uh, how did he navigate that with the Italians, with the the mafia family there? Was he always just a, an earner for them? He had to be kicking somebody some money, I would think. Uh, but it seems different in Cleveland, so I'm not sure. Well, you know, for a long time, uh, John Scalish was the boss. I think he started back in 1944, and he lasted until 1976 when he uh, died during heart surgery. And he was a, a guy, my, my research has shown, that really didn't want to run things with an iron fist because that would mean uh, more heat from law enforcement. For instance, there were a couple guys, uh, uh, one by the name of Eugene Ciasulu, who, who wanted to organize. He was one of the soldiers and enforcers. He wanted to organize all the bookies so that they'd all have to kick up and everything would be organized. They'd have a system going. And uh, from what I understand, John Scalish said no, because he didn't want um, the the uh, the intimidation and the threats and the violence that would come if, if uh you know, if, if clients didn't, didn't pay when they were supposed to pay, or if the, uh, or if the bookies weren't kicking up like they were supposed to. But I think when it, when it comes to uh, Shonder and Tony Panzarella, I, I think they probably were kicking up a portion of what they were making, but you know, it was, it was a, a, uh, mostly a black operation. And again, the bets, especially even the twenties and thirties, they were, they, you could even have penny bets, mm -hmm. nickel bets, maybe by the forties and fifties, you started having quarter bets. And then the sixties and seventies, you had 50 cents and dollar, uh, uh, dollar bets, but they, they, um, they, they looked upon it differently because it was, um, mostly a black operation. So the, the, uh, 
the 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 main you know uh, crew and the mafia and the bosses didn't want as much to 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 do with it as they you know as they would have to do with things like vending machines and gambling, other gambling operations and casinos and floating floating games and 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 so forth. And of course, the skim the skim money coming in from the Las Vegas uh, casino. So they were kind of hands hands off with it. But I think Shonda and Tony Panzarello, they recognized that there was, yeah. and certainly the black numbers operators uh, recognized that there was money to be made. And, and, and while I'm mentioning the black numbers operators, and uh, there, there were a few uh, white numbers operators, but the big ones were black. And you got to remember one of the names was a guy by the name of Donald the Kid King. Uh, oh, now, oh, if, really? <laughs> in probably about the, the 19, uh, late 60s going into the 70s, Donald the King, Donald the Kid King emerged as Don King, the yeah. boxing promoter. Mm-hmm. But he was one of Cleveland's uh, big uh, numbers operators uh, during the um, late 60s and early 1970s. There were maybe, maybe a half dozen uh, big ones. Richard Drake, uh, who has uh, who, who is rumored to uh, uh, to not be fathered by Arthur Drake, who was uh, always known to be his um father but there's a little surprise twist for anyone who uh, wants to read in the book i won't uh, i won't give it away right now but uh, he was he was one of the big ones and 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 don king shonda burns of course um and uh they, they were making a lot of money it was a very popular game my, my own grandparents uh played the number mm-hmm. you know and uh i think the guy in uh in their neighborhood who controlled it around 105th in, in, in euclid on the east side was uh was uh, Arthur Drake. They called him Little Brother Drake, and he was the father of Richard Drake. And when Arthur died, that's when uh, Richard took over his operation. So it's very popular, popular enough that the state decided, hey, we need to get into this too. Yeah. And they, they, they changed that. the laws. And then we had the Ohio Lottery Commission. Uh, yeah. And I think their first number was, uh, was uh, uh, coincidentally, it was a three-digit number, just like uh, oh, really? Clearinghouse. <laughs> the Buckeye Three, I think it was called. And then, of course, you had lottery commissions popping up all over the place <laughs> yeah. different, uh, in different states during the, the um, uh, probably the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. yeah. And all of a sudden, the gambling was legal. How about that? Yeah, really, <laughs> I I think when you talk about nickels and, and penny bets and quarter bets, I know that that, that here in in Chicago and in Northwest Indiana, I mean, you're talking millions of dollars were going into this. I think was your research shown was it? I, I mean, you're talking hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars were in were in this were in the uh, the policy games. Is that is that about what you're, well, what you're looking I, at? I don't I don't can't have that number like in front of me like on a whole. Exactly level or a whole state level or, or nationally but i know these, these guys were making you know like in some weeks they were you know they were bringing in like maybe six thousand dollars was was coming in and i per game right most of that most of that was profit you know for yeah. other games within a within a five uh a five day week because you know after i mentioned policy now policy was easy to cheat with that's what mm-hmm. uh, you know numbers racketeer started with back in the uh, back in the real early you know the late late 1800s going into the 1900s and that was a bag they they, they put uh, i don't know if it was 80 or 100 little balls they put in a uh, bag uh in fact the cuban the the, the cuban version was known as bolita, bolita which i think means um little balls so they yeah. had these 100 little balls put them in a bag and then a crowd gathers around, maybe in front of what they call a policy house. It was like a neighborhood, uh, uh, a neighborhood party almost. And they'd have the drawing, and the and the, and the drawer would reach in the bag and and, and pull out the, uh, the the balls, and those would be the, the the winning numbers. But it was so easy to cheat, and and I found it uh, rather r- remarkable and creative. Some of the ways they they cheated with these games, the, the operators would take. Um, like ball, if there were balls that they didn't want pulled because they would see how many, um, how much money was bet on certain numbers. So if they had uh, numbers that they, they didn't want pulled uh, before they went in the bag, they'd stick them in the freezer for like a half hour. <laughs> so if the, if the, if the puller, the drawer reached in the bag and he felt, you know, a, a cold numbers be like, Oh, okay. Can't pull that one. <laughs> and he, he'd oh. fiddle around. And then they also had, um, uh, balls that they would like a second set of balls that they would, that they would shave. Uh, I have, I have a picture of that in the, um, 
in the book. So they were shaved or uh, concave or convex. I don't uh, remember my uh, terminology from high school, but it was very easy by feel to tell that that was a ball, a ball that you did not want to pull out. So, uh, you know, that, that kind of cheating led to the popularity of Clearinghouse, which um, the numbers, the, the winning numbers were, in Cleveland anyway, uh, were, were determined by the stock market results, the, um, the, uh, the, the wins, the losses, and unchanged. There were certain columns that came out. Uh, every every business day in the in the business news, and they would line up those columns, and, and that would be the winning number. Almost impossible to uh, to cheat. I think in in Chicago they may have used um, horse horse. Yeah, writing it off on the race. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in Cleveland, mm-hmm. it was uh, the stock market figures. Just a random number. Yeah, you know, in Kansas City, they they did something called pulling the wheel, and it was some kind of a little machine they had that they'd spin, and it would come up with the the numbers that would come mm. up. They had this uh, bar, or not bar, it was a, a liquor store, corner store, that the guy that, he was the guy that pulled the wheel and then they announced the numbers. And yeah. in Kansas City, nobody really paid any attention. The blacks were never bothered about the the policy. And I don't really remember it. You know, a few people may have played the black game, but primarily it was a black game in Kansas City. And yeah. our, our family, our Italian family, never had any interest in that at all. Yeah. Well, the, well, you know, the, the takeover, uh, or at least extracting a profit, you know, from them, that was back to the 20s and 30s, and maybe lasted into the 40s. But by the, by the time the 50s came around, you know, the black operators would get a little bit more organized, and they weren't, they weren't having, they weren't having that anymore, you know, but they did, they did work with Shonder only because he had the connections, like I said before, to the police departments, yeah. he had the cash, you know, he had access to cash and, and he had that uh, group of enforcers that would, um, you know, would, would, would go out and if they had to rough up a guy because he, uh, in fact, that's what would happen with Don King. Don King was, um, was shot in the head. Fortunately, mm-hmm. it was with, uh, it was a shotgun blast, but it was bur- with bird shot. And it was from enough of a distance that, you know, those, those tiny little pellets didn't prove fatal for him. But uh, he was um, he was kind of going up against Shonda Burns, and uh, I think it was that he was he had lowered his odds. I think the odds typically were six hundred to one. Mm-hmm. So that if you uh, somebody had a dollar bet and they they won that dollar bet, they would make six hundred dollars, or a fifty cent bet would be three hundred dollars. But I think at one point uh, Donald King lowered his odds to, uh, or no, it was five hundred to one. But then Donald King raised his odds to 600 to one, 600 to one, so he'd have okay, a better okay. payoff. Yeah. So then they started getting uh, the, the the gamblers who were kind of, you know, that would change things. Now the gamblers would want to bet with somebody who had the the, the higher um, the higher payoff, yeah. and then and then that would that would not be good overall, you know. So Shonda Burns was a guy who the the the, the numbers operators trusted to to keep things running smoothly, to keep the profits coming in, to keep the cops at to keep the cops at bay. And, um, and, and they really, uh, the, the vast majority of them really, uh, really liked him. He was a, he was a popular uh, character and he had a, uh, an important role in the, uh, in the game. He was, he was kind of like on, on both sides of the lawn way, even, I mean, is that right? I thought I remembered hearing about that. I mean, even the, the cops who were, were after him sort of had a, had a grudging respect for him in a way, especially as he got older. I mean, when he's sort of in legitimate, uh, societies, his, his rabbi and, and, and different groups sort of sort of smiled on him in a way, just he was sort of a, a nefarious character in a way who, who they just sort of laughed and went along with. Well, yeah, I, I think they, 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 they smiled, perhaps not uh, appro- approvingly, but certainly, <laughs> right. certainly knowingly. Um, <laughs> and, and, and uh, you know, Chandra never changed. He was like that until the day he died. And, and uh, everybody, everybody knew what he did. He, he never really um, tried to, uh, he, he never really tried to hide what he did. You know, he, he made his money, uh, 90% of it Ill, illegally in, 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 in different ways. Um, it, he, he, one of the ways he also, uh, uh, brought in money was being a fence. You know, he, he'd find, uh, buyers for stolen property. And that factored in with an important character in the book by the name of Mervyn Gold, who was this con man who fancied himself a uh, a racketeer guy like to uh, hang out with with mobsters but really what he was just a businessman slash con man 
and uh, he had loaned uh, he had loaned Shonder some money. And when 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 uh, when Mervin called the note, Shonder gave him uh, like a million dollars worth of uh, these bonds, these bearer bonds that were were actually stolen. And Mervin Gold. Uh, uh, after after a while, the, the the heat came to Cleveland because this was an a, an international case. Uh, the bonds were were stolen from Canada, and when the investigation kind of came to Cleveland, Mervyn Gold was was told, "Hey, you need to burn those bonds. Don't do anything with those bonds." Well, Mervyn needed money, so he takes a portion of them to the bank, and he uses them as collateral to take out a loan. And yeah. uh, well, one thing led to another, and the bank president learned that the the bonds were were stolen. And he calls uh, Mervin Gold in. Mervin Gold says, "I'll be in. I'll be in this afternoon." Instead, takes his family to New York, and they board a plane, wind up in Israel. Yeah. And he's uh, Mervin Gold was a, a, a Jewish uh, Jewish con man, and he attempted to um, return to uh, Israel under their their law of return. Right. Uh, mm-hmm which incidentally, I don't know how many years later it was, the same thing that Meyer Lansky tried. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, Israel, uh, they, they fought it, and eventually they deported uh, Mervyn, and he wound up back in Cleveland, had all kind of uh, federal indictments, and uh, he, uh, he basically backed Shonda Burns uh, into a corner about the, uh, about the bonds, was, was trying to... Um, was trying to get money for his legal defense because he'd run out of money from Shonder Burns, basically telling Shonder, Shonder Burns, I mean, one of the most feared racketeers in, in Cleveland, like, my problems or are, are your problems, Sean, so you got to help yeah. me. Well, you know, it, it went on for a few months, and then and then finally, uh, I think Shonder had enough, and Mervyn Gold disappeared. Uh, uh, they issued a warrant, a bench warrant for his arrest, thought maybe he fled town. It wasn't the case. Uh, and there was a uh, cop in a, a little village uh, who was patrolling and noticed this car and looked at the license plate and checked his hot sheet and saw that, oh, yep, that, that plate is wanted. And, uh, and they wound up uh, searching. Uh, they had a search party come out because it was down by a uh, river. They thought maybe Mervyn Gold went down by the river and killed himself, you know. And then uh, some uh, bright uh, police officer had the idea, hey, maybe we should check the trunk, you know? Uh, <laughs> they probably should have checked the trunk first because uh, unfortunately for Mervyn Gold, that's where they found him. He had been mm-hmm. uh, beaten and uh, beaten and shot and strangled. And uh, and uh, there was big, uh, big thing, big headlines, big case, uh, the coroner called a coroner's inquest. Uh, which was open to the public, and, and um, Shonder Burns was was called to testify, and he had this young this young lady. I mean, Shonder was in his early fifties by then, and I think she was in her early twenties. Her name was Ellie. She was a uh, Kent State University uh, graduate who had become a uh, teacher, and she was just smitten with this older man, and uh, she remained loyal to him for years, but she uh, uh, testified uh, on his behalf by basically not testifying because <laughs> Shonder said that he was with her during this period of time that Mervyn Gold went missing and uh, she refused to testify. Uh, Shonda refused to testify and uh, pretty soon, uh, this was I think 1962, 1963, pretty soon the case was dropped. And then uh, President Kennedy was killed and Mervyn Gold kind of disappeared from the uh, from the news and Shonda Burns eventually went on his way. Uh, but always to be the uh, number one suspect in the murder of Mervyn Gold. Yeah, I, I had that question. He, he's, uh, how violent, uh, how far was he willing to go with his violence? Uh, obviously, uh, when he's personally threatened like that, he might go all the way. Was he... Uh, his guys, his, his enforcers, were they instructed to go very far or not? I, I, I think they were, depending on how much of a problem it was. Uh, now, for a guy like um, a guy like uh, Donald King, Don King, uh, you know, Shonder had a guy in the. Um, uh, it's funny when you open the show, Gary, and you say, "What you know, wiretappers," <laughs> and they had a wiretap on uh, Shonder. I think it was down in. Uh, down in, in, in Florida, in Miami, and it was mm-hmm. with uh, the guys that I just mentioned, uh, Jaime, uh, uh, Jaime Martin and George Gordon. 
and they uh, they heard they overheard uh, this this conversation. I was able to get my hands on the transcript and and Shonda Burns in Cleveland. He had a uh, a ranking police officer. This was during the 1960s uh, uh, and uh, uh, maybe going into the early 70s too, but definitely in the 60s. And uh, and he he supposedly got a call from uh, uh, Shonda got a call from this police officer. He said, "Hey, look." Donald King has come, he's coming to the police department. He's looking for protection. And, and according to Shonda Burns telling this story, uh, the, the, the cop told him, Hey, look, if you're going to do anything, take it out, you know, take it outside of Cleveland, take it outside, <laughs> outside of Cuyahoga County. You can't um, do what you got to do. So. <laughs> but what Shonda mentioned to his friends, he said, I wasn't planning on taking it uh, with, with Donald King to that to that level, you know, um, but yeah, if they needed to, uh, he had guys like, uh, like Bob Bogus, um, and, uh, uh, let me see who, who else there, there, there were a couple more and they were very capable, uh, enforcers. Sometimes they used bombs. Sometimes they used, uh, guns and no doubt Shonda Burns was fully capable himself. But uh, he, he was uh, rather ju judicious with the use of, of, uh, uh, of the, uh, the bomb or the bullet. And there, there comes in the other part of the title of the book, and that's the bribe. Mm -hmm. So he would pay guys. He, he was also known for uh, fixing juries. You know, he'd, he'd uh, pay a juror. He might even pay a witness hey, uh, or, or, or a victim. You know, here's ten thousand uh, dollars. You know, go on vacation for your court date, and the investigators would, the detectives and the prosecutor would be looking for this, this uh, witness or victim, and eventually they'd have to drop the, uh, drop the charges. So he was, Shonda was was very uh, 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 t tactical the way he, he 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 did things like that. He really thought things out and uh, was able to use uh, the, the the bribe to to a great degree. To, to benefit himself, especially when he got himself in trouble. Yeah, you have to be much more, like, like tactical is a good word. You have to be much more politically savvy. You might have to, have to have a lot more connections to be able to bribe, know who to bribe and know when to bribe and when it's going to work and how much to use, what amount. So that 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 part of the title really, really uh, impressed me. I think that anybody can can use muscle or knows when to, when to you know, use a, a blackjack on somebody, but it's who to bribe and when is, is where you really get that, that that political savvy. Yeah. And, and his whole mindset was, was he, you know, he was just, um, he was strategic, you know, he was strategic with, with, with what he did and he knew he had certain tools at his disposal. Uh, but he used them, um, Cam, like you're saying, he, he, he figured what's, what's the best to do in this, in this particular case. And he, uh, he was, uh, successful. And I mean, he, now he's not a guy that, you know, amassed, a you know, millions of dollars and, and then, and then retired to, to Florida or Las Vegas, but he, um, you know, he just kept his operations going. And I think he, he, he looked like a guy that kind of enjoyed his life. He, he'd go down to the clubs in the afternoon, he'd start at one club and then, you know, in the later afternoon, he'd wind up another club, then he'd go to dinner and then he, you know, he'd wind up in the, in the evening, maybe in, in another place and, um, you know, drive, drive, driving around in his Cadillac and, uh, you know, I think he enjoyed the the position that he had. I don't know if he ever really aspired to uh, to to be retired. In fact, he once was quoted as uh, saying uh, uh, something like, "I don't I don't ever want to uh, die in, in or be in a rocking chair, die in a rocking chair." You know, <laughs> and he is 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 the end of the story. That's <laughs> uh, certainly not what happened with with Shonda Burns. So what about the babes? You mentioned the babes. What about the babes? Oh yeah, he was he was just a real womanizer, and and he had uh, you know he had he was a club a club owner too. He had uh, the Alhambra that was probably the best known one, um, and, and uh, he had a young young girl who she must have been eighteen or nineteen years old who worked in the office with him, and he he just had you know he fancied young women. He fancied women in their in their early twenties. And he fancied them when he was in his 30s and when he was in his 40s and when he's in his 50s. Always the women. <laughs> and the, 60s and 70s. <laughs> yeah. Well, he didn't, get, he didn't get quite to 70, but uh, right. he got pretty close. Uh, but yeah, uh, so one, one, I mean, he was married. 
he was married to um, Jane and they had, they had one son and then, uh, and then he met Ellie. Uh, she was a waitress at a restaurant that he, uh, he frequented and uh, you know, he was a big tipper and I think that caught her attention and, and she was sort of a, I, I guess a tragic figure too, you know, her, her father had died uh, kind of young. I don't know, you know, I'm not a psychologist. Maybe that had something to do with her attraction to an older, an older guy. But when she got involved with him, she was all in, she was uh, loyal to a fault and eventually they uh, married and, but he still, you know, he still had interests with other, <laughs> other women in the, uh, one of them, uh, one of them was connected to a group of Hell's Angels, and uh, I think that also contributed to the um, uh, the, the motives that led to uh, that led to Chandra's demise. Interesting. Yeah. So let's talk about his demise. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you, you had uh, you had a conflict with Danny Green. Now that's kind of been well documented. Yeah. Uh, even though uh, it seems like people just uh, they they. I, I was just, I did a, a thing at a downtown uh, place called a music box, popular thing. And they do a Cleveland stories thing. And I, I've been there probably five times. And they still wanted to hear about Danny Green all these years yeah. later. And the place was, the place was packed. Um, and it's kind of like, let's talk about Chandra Burns. Cause that's my more recent title. Yeah. <laughs> so we know that the, uh, Danny Green was sort of a, um, uh, a protege really of, 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 um, of Chandra Burns. Uh, Chandra Burns was the mentor, you know, Chandra Burns was the one who didn't mind talking to the reporters. I mean, he would sit down with them, he'd pick up their drinks, pick up dinner. Uh, that was something the Italians, they did not do. You just, you don't talk to reporters, yeah, you don't become yeah. friendly with them. But Chandra doing, uh, did that, and later uh, Danny Green was known mm-hmm. for doing that too. Danny Green was known for being a womanizer. He was known for being an enforcer. So, um uh, I mentioned, I think that Chandra Burns at one point, uh, the, uh, the the law enforcement here in Cleveland, they did have some success because they they tried like hell to put this guy behind bars, whether it be a, a county jail, state prison or federal pen. Didn't have much luck. But in the late 60s, they um, they charged him and, and convicted him of bribery. He got a three year sentence, but he had a great, uh, great attorney by the name of Jim Willis. In fact, Jim is still around. I think he's 95 years old. Really? Uh, been practicing up until fairly recently. I'm not sure if he's still practicing. Uh, very well known to and very successful in the appeals uh, uh, arena. But uh, Willis kept uh, kept filing paperwork. And even though there was this this conviction and this sentence of uh, of three years, it's like a year later, Shonda Burns is still on the streets. Well, he he hires Danny Green, who had been. Uh, you might say retired from the uh, dock workers union because he w- he'd been ousted for uh, for basically basically embezzling funds. He had also become a um, an FBI informant. But uh, you know we, we I think we know enough about Danny Green. So so Chandra Burns basically um, assigned Danny Green to watch over his business, his numbers operation, uh, while he was going to be in prison for three years. So. In the in the months leading up to him having like his appeals and all the paperwork running out, uh, and and uh, him having to actually uh, turn himself in, he started taking Danny Green around, showing him his operation, introducing him to uh, the different uh, important figures within the uh, the numbers racket. So that's what that's what Danny Green did for Shonda. Shonda Burns went away for three years, and Danny uh, Green oversaw his um, his operation the problem was that danny green was uh how would you he was also overseeing ellie okay does that that make sense yeah and and uh and 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 i think ellie was okay with it you know she was um she was uh i think she liked the attention and uh and they had an affair i think for a while and of course we know danny green was this fiercely proud Irishman who, you know, everything was a color green, green cars, green Lincoln Continental, <laughs> yeah. green sport jackets. He wrote in green ink, gave out green pens, great, gave out these uh, gold uh, Celtic crosses imported from Ireland. Um, and he gave, uh, he gave um, Ellie a, uh, a green teddy bear. And I heard that from a, a friend who I was able to uh, interview. Unfortunately, she had, uh, she had died by the time I started working on the, um, on the book. So 
they have this affair uh, and, and three years goes by and then Chandra came, comes out of prison. He gets back into his numbers racket. Now, Danny Green is pretty much out of a, uh, out of a job. And, and there may have been some conflict over the fact that he had been having an affair with Ellie. So some bad blood develops. Danny Green borrows uh, money that Shoner Burns gets for him um, from uh, his connections with the New York mob. And the money winds up being lost by a drug courier. And yeah, Shoner yeah. blames Danny. Danny blames Shoner. And then uh, during this period of time, Shoner gets involved with a... Um, a woman by the name of uh, Janie Jarris, who, who also likes to hang around Hell's Angels and also is also heavily involved with a Hell's Angel, winds up having a baby with him. She tries to distance herself from Shonda Burns and Shonda really wasn't having any of it. So there was a, uh, the guy that she was involved with, um, uh, the Hell's Angel she was involved with, was a guy by the name of George Rothrock. Now, George Rothrock and two or three other Cleveland Hells Angels were heavily into um, weapons, like heavy weapons, um, uh, automatic uh, uh, rifles, machine guns, uh, hand grenades, things like that, and bombs, explosives. They were part of um, a, a, a circle of people connected to different uh, uh, organized crime people that um, were, were uh, sort of experts with explosives. So he had this George Rothrock who had a motive to, uh, to get rid of, of um, Shonda Burns. And you had Danny Green who had this conflict that had, um, that had escalated to him and Shonda, he and Shonda going after each other, whether it be taking shots at each other or putting a bomb on each other's car. And, um, and, and so it escalated to the point that I believe, um, you know, my, my research as best as I could deduce is that Danny Green, you know, ordered Shonda Burns um, to be murdered. And one of his crew, crew members, his chief enforcer by the name of Keith Ritson, along with George Rothrock, uh, planted that bomb on Shonda Burns' car um, and uh, detonated, by, detonated it by remote control when uh, moments after Shonder got in the, uh, into the, in the car on Cleveland's near West side, West 25th and Detroit Avenue. And, and, and Shonder Burns was killed uh, instantaneously. This was Holy Saturday of uh, what was, it? I think 1970, uh, 1975, I believe. And it happened to be right across from this. Uh, it was an old Irish settlement, this church, uh, St. Malachi. And, and you see in the movie, in the movie, kill the Irishman, you see that, uh, that uh, scene is portrayed a little bit loosely, but it's portrayed with the, I think, with the church in the background. So mass was just starting. I think it was about eight o'clock. And then this explosion, this huge explosion goes off. And uh, uh, it kind of spoiled, uh, spoiled the, uh, the Holy Saturday mass there. And uh, I suppose it spoiled uh, Easter uh, for some of the uh, homicide detectives too. When, uh, when yeah. morning light came, they had to go back to the scene and start uh, picking up the, literally picking up the pieces and evidence and all that. And that was the end. It was a very big dramatic end. Probably uh, Shonda Burns would have, uh, would have uh, signed off on that. Like you said, he didn't, uh, never wanted to die in a rocking chair. Uh, I suppose he didn't want to be blown out the roof of his Lincoln Continental, but uh, that's, uh, that's how he met his maker. Well, there's nothing like going out in a blaze of glory. In the movie, I think uh, uh, afterward, uh, uh, Christopher Walken was interviewed again about that scene. I think they they asked him, like, because he, you know, he's pulling open the door, and boom, the, the explosion uh, goes off. And they asked him, like, how that was done. He said, "I have no idea. I wasn't there." Like, what they did. <laughs> it all, it all mystery. <laughs> afterward, you know, yeah. the, the explosion, and then the you know, in, in, in editing and all that. So uh, <laughs> yeah, he, he, he was a character, um, uh, quite a good character. I mean, the movie was, was I, I, I tell people the movie is, um, it's really the, the Hollywood version of the story. Now I'm absolutely thrilled that it got made and, yeah. and the, uh, the actors, actresses, I mean, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio and Val Kilmer yeah. and, and Christopher Walken, uh, great, great talent. So I'm, I'm proud and I'm uh, very fortunate, but it's definitely the, definitely the Hollywood story. Like many, many movies are, they, yeah. they take their, 
they take their liberties with the story. That, that mentorship role that you described, right? That's, that's really interesting. You see that touched on a little bit in the film, but really that really explains a lot about how a guy like Danny Green really sort of ascended to where he was. I mean, it's, it, I mean, on more than just, just sort of, just sort of, you know, balls alone. I mean, he had to have sort of that, that, that gateway. And it sounds like sort of seeing Shondor and seeing those connections and especially Shondor going into prison and opening that door for Danny while he was there. That, that really makes a lot more sense. Understanding that, that, that path was paved for him in a way that, that really, that mentorship sort of role in going away, that really does, that really does explain that his entry a lot, a lot better as I understand. Yeah. And I think a lot of the connections though for Danny had already, already, at least I think he was starting to make a name for, name for himself in the, uh, in the Longshoremen's Union, yeah, yeah. become the president. So he now, now starts hanging out with these guys. And some of these, these labor unions, like in a lot of the big cities during the, you know, gosh, from probably the thirties through to the seventies, they were, as they, as they say, as Jim Neff, the author and uh, newspaper man would say, they were mobbed up. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they had, uh, clear connections to organized crime figures. So that was the circle that Danny Green was kind of moving in, hanging out at places like the, uh, the uh, the fabled uh, theatrical bar and grill uh, where you'd have uh, prosecutors and defense attorneys and judges sitting at this table. And then you'd have bookies and racketeers and, and uh, you know, organ organized crime uh, bosses sitting uh, at, at another table. So he, his name was being made. But yes, guys like um, Chandra Burns and, and also Frank Brancato, who was a Cleveland mm -hmm. uh, Bob lieutenant um, and also needed Chandra's services as an enforcer um uh to run his you know his, his gambling operations not run them but but to uh to step in and, and help when when needed uh guys like that yeah they did kind of uh pave the way a little bit but but danny green was also his uh definitely his own man he was a strong yeah, yeah. independent character and and uh and then you know eventually it was his his alliance with Jardy, who was an important character uh, mm -hmm. another uh, uh, labor union official and organized crime mafia associate, uh, who, who kind of made a, vi a bid to take over the, uh, the Cleveland mafia when John Scalish died. So, yeah, but Danny was, uh, definitely a, a, a character just like, uh, just like Chandra Burns. Chandra, so, yeah. Yeah. They were, they, they weren't the, uh, they, they were the, uh, 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 you know, kind of, kind of the opposite of what the mafia was, was supposed to be. You know, they were, they were bigger than life. They were, you know, they were brash, they were loud, you know, like I said, they, they'd go on camera, they talk to reporters. Um, and, and, uh, and, and that plays into one of the questions I would get sometimes is, uh, as I do these presentations, um, uh, you know, around town, which has become kind of a nice sideline for him. people, people ask, well, how come you never wrote a book about John Scalish? He was the Cleveland mafia boss for like four decades or so. And it's, that's a good question. I had yeah. to think about that. And you know why? Because John Scalish was quiet. He, he operated <laughs> under the radar, yeah. you know, he, he, you know, he had the money coming in, he had a, a, a vending company and he'd go out on his boat and he had his political connections and everything, but he wasn't this larger than life, brash, loud person who would, uh, you know, who would be happy to sit down with newspaper reporters, but that's, that's exactly what, uh, what Chandra Burns was. And then mm -hmm. following him, what, what Danny Green was. And I think that's what, uh, attracted me to, to, to write about them. And I think that's what attracted, uh, so many people to, to enjoy the, uh, to enjoy the story. And that's what attracted Hollywood to, uh, to adapt the book for, uh, for, for motion picture. Mm -hmm. There's definitely something to be said for, for picking the right characters and, and picking the interesting stories. I mean, there's the mob's one thing with being able to, to cherry pick and find the story in, in, a, in a sea of stories. I mean, that's that's really said something, Rick. I mean, it, it really does. I, I, that's a, there's a real talent to that. Well, I hope my talent continues. <laughs> well, I think it will. Used to, yeah. Another motion picture adaptation. Yeah, we got really. Super Thief out there, and they were uh, they were ready to move forward, and then COVID hit. I, I'm not complaining because a lot of people were were hit a, a heck of a lot worse, and uh, we lost a, a heck of a lot of people due, due to that damn pandemic. But uh, really? but yeah, uh, so I'm, I'm I'm hoping that things will continue to move forward now that we're we're getting kind of uh, hopefully post pandemic.
Now, now remind me, a Super Thief, that you got that book out there, right? Yeah, Super Thief came mm-hmm. out, uh, oh gosh, when, uh, well, I'm not even sure. It's been, it's been out for a while. I want to say maybe maybe uh, 2005. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's the, basically the, the story, the inside story uh, by Phil Christopher, a uh, notorious burglar uh, of the biggest bank burglary at the time, yeah. the biggest bank burglary in U.S. history and his um, association with uh, with the mafia. He was an associate, another guy that really didn't want to get too involved with them, but he was a master burglar and, and uh, had his own crew and worked with uh, guys from Youngstown, Northeast Ohio, the Dinzio brothers. These were all master burglars. And, and the, big, the big bank job that I referred to was in 1972 in Orange County, California and Laguna uh, Niguel, California. So, uh, you know, it's a big, uh, it's a big story with some interesting characters. Uh, there's a documentary out about it. And uh, uh, so I'm, I've got my fingers crossed. We'll see what happens. Yeah, that'd be a good one. I like those caper uh, mo- uh, movies. You don't get enough of them. I think they're hard to make. Uh, and like Heat was a caper movie. That was, and, and the Super Thief, uh, probably Heat maybe was based on that a little, uh, little bit. Well, I think, you know, I, I think of the film, and I told the, the, uh, the uh, original producer, who, who is actually the same one who uh, kind of shepherded to kill the Irishman to the big screen, Tommy Reed. Uh, I, I, I told Tommy, and I think he agreed, it, it's, it's going to be the next big heist flick, you know, yeah. uh, so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see. I think, we're, I think we're getting close. Good, good. No, good deal. Crossed on good that deal. One. Interesting. All right, Cam, you got any more questions? No, no, nothing, uh, nothing for him. Just glad to glad to get a chance to uh, talk to Rick again and, and be on the show again. All right, Rick, we really appreciate you coming on. We've got this book here, folks. I'll put pictures of it up and I'll have links on my uh, show notes, Bombs, Bullets, and Bribes. And then we've got Super Thief too. I think you guys might be interested in reading that. Uh, I, I've not read it. I know a little bit about the stories we talked before and, and uh, I, I may have to pick that up. I believe I will. Yeah, it's actually, uh, it went out of print, but as they get close to uh, uh, green lighting the film, uh, I think we're going to go back to print and issue a uh, yeah. new edition. I think it's out there in uh, ebook, uh, ebook uh, form. Yeah, it's always going to be an ebook, mm-hmm. isn't it? And, and there'll be yeah. used books out there. They, you, get, you click on that and there'll yeah, be a yeah, bunch yeah. of used bookstores. Uh, yeah. well, that first book I wrote, I, I, I was just putzing around. It never really sold anything. It, was, it wasn't even a Bob book. But I was I was putzing around. And I see that there's an autographed copy out there at some thrift store in the United States. I thought, oh well, that's interesting. <laughs> was it was it going for a hundred bucks? <laughs> no, afraid not. I think it was like I, th- I think it was free for it. Uh, pay the postage if I remember right. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear. Mine usually go for five dollars above retail. <laughs> <laughs> now yeah. if I. If I get whacked, that'll be a different story. Yeah, yeah, that'll make it a lot better. <laughs> you know, actually, one last question. Was, were the Pirellos in Kansas City, were, was Joe Agosto, was he a relative or not? I, I can't remember if I asked you or not. You know, that was that was never clear in okay. my mind. I believe he may have been. But yeah, right. the Pirellos, uh, I think you're speaking of. Um, Angelo. Uh, there's Joe Pirello and Angelo Pirello. Right. Yes, they were. They were cousins. I even remember my father uh, speaking of them and of those connections to uh, to uh, to Kansas City. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Angelo died in prison actually not too long ago. He's about ninety some years old when he died. He and his son Joe had uh, <clears throat> they contracted with some uh, young guys, uh, some young black guys, and they did a big, big jewelry heist down on the Plaza Shopping Rainy Shopping area, and, and it all fell apart on them when the when the when the uh, robbers, uh, the robbery crew started breaking apart, then the whole thing fell apart on them. And the main guy broke down on everybody and then testified against uh, the father and son and, and put them in for quite a yeah, while. Yeah, it's kind of kind of sad to see, you know, a, a guy of his age wind up involved in something that like that. Mm-hmm. And then go to prison and then and then die in prison. I yeah. think his, his brother, Joe, wasn't he killed in, uh, I don't know, in the 1960s? Oh, man. I'm pretty sure he was. Uh, but this, this was his son that was was caught up. They had a pawn shop that were caught yeah, up right, in that right. burglary in, in that jewelry robbery. Yeah, and, but Angelo Angelo had a brother. Had I think brother. A younger brother. Uh, I think he was younger. Actually, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure his name was Joe. And I think he was uh, murdered in the 1960s. Uh, 60s. And they were 
you know, there were Kansas City uh, mafia members, soldiers, associates. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Rick. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Good to be here, Gary. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Cam. And thank you, everyone. Right, Great Cam. to talk to you, Rick. Cam, thanks. We'll be okay. in touch. Absolutely. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Folks, uh, don't forget, if you want to uh, uh, get any of my books or anything, go to my website, www.ganglandwire.com. Uh, if you want to get any of Rick's books, I tell you what, you can just Google Rick Perello, P-O-R-R-E-L-L-O, and you'll find them. And, and we'll be giving you the titles. I'll have notes uh, or links in the show notes. Uh, if you look out for motorcycles out there, if you have a think you might have a problem with PTSD and you've been in the service, Go ahead and, and Google PTSD and the Veterans Administration. And I promise you there's a hotline and there's a lot of help for you out there. So thanks a lot, folks.